Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Hi, welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles, from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. Today's episode features two interviews. Firstly, we talk about a very timely topic, monkeypox, with public health specialist Dr. Louise Siegfried from Oxford University in the UK. An ongoing outbreak of monkeypox, which is a viral disease, was confirmed in May 2022, and the initial cluster of cases was found in the United Kingdom, where the first case was detected on the 6th of May 2022 in an individual with travel links to Nigeria. However, the Biden administration this month declared the outbreak of monkeypox a public health emergency. Who is at risk? What are the clinical guideline recommendations? Dr. Siegfried has been involved in the public health response since the very beginning of this current outbreak and recently published a paper examining the clinical guidelines for prevention and treatment of monkeypox. Our second interview is with our regular contributor and a registered radiologist and medical malpractice attorney who goes by the pseudonym Dr. Medlaw. She tells us about what loss of chance doctrine means in a medical malpractice claim. Under the loss of chance doctrine, a doctor can be held liable for causing a patient's loss of a chance to be cured if the doctor negligently fails to diagnose a curable disease and that patient is then harmed by the disease. Fascinating topic. Enjoy listening. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Siegfried. Firstly, could you introduce yourself and then could you tell us, start just by talking about monkeypox in general. What's the situation right now? Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Louise Siegfried and I'm a clinical research fellow and a public health specialist and I work at the International Severe Acute Respiratory and Emerging Infection Consortium at Oxford University. What's the current status right now with the monkeypox outbreak and what are the general concerns with regard to public health? So monkeypox is a zoonotic disease. It's caused by an autopox virus belonging to the same genus as smallpox. The first human case was discovered in 1970 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And since then, we've seen regular outbreaks, mainly in Central and Western African countries. It's not a new disease, and we know it's affected the humans. However, this is the first time we're seeing a prolonged outbreak of human-to-human transmission in traditionally non-endemic countries, which is a cause for concern. And contrary to popular belief, it's not transmitted from monkeys to humans, right? It's a zoonotic disease, which means that it can be transmitted from animals to humans. So this is how it traditionally enters the human transmission chain. But what we currently see in the traditional non-endemic countries, where we haven't experienced this human-to-human transmission before, is that it's predominantly spread from human to humans through close contact. All right. So what are some of the concerns about what's being seen right now? It's not endemic anymore, just simply to Central and Western Africa. We're seeing many thousands of cases outside of those regions. As far as the public health is concerned, what do we need to know and what are the guidelines? And I wanted to refer to your paper, which is a systematic review about those guidelines. Can you take a deeper dive into that particularly? So clinical guidelines are important to help clinicians guide clinical decision-making and for the patients to receive the best available evidence-based care to improve outcomes. Having guidelines early on in epidemics may also help prevent inappropriate medications being trialed. So we see that, for example, now in long COVID, where people desperately try lots of different medications and all medications have side effects, etc. So clinical management guidelines may also have a role there in preventing you know, non-evidence-based care. 
One of the concerns is that although monkeypox has been known for decades, there hasn't been that much research carried out, which is an issue. And our colleague has been working hard on generating funding for studies earlier on. And I think what we now witness is that we need to be better prepared to respond to new re-emerging infectious diseases. As we know, in a more globalised world, Diseases traditionally endemic in more tropical regions can rapidly spread to new areas for travel, trade and climate change. So one of the issues now is that we're seeing an outbreak in people and the data on how to treat cases is still quite limited and also how most effectively manage cases and also the risk of secondary complications. And another issue is that clinicians in these countries who are not used to seeing cases. It may take time for them to diagnose cases when they first present. It can resemble other more common infections. And it's of importance that cases are rapidly detected so that we can prevent onward transmission and control the outbreaks. So one issue is that clinicians will likely be less familiar with identifying and diagnosing, taking the right samples for diagnostics, and also potentially in some countries issue to access to diagnostics and awareness of how to manage those patients who need some more medical management. And although it's a mild disease in most cases, it has a risk of secondary complications. So we've seen a few fatalities in some countries from secondary complications mainly. And although it's a mild infection in most cases and people can recover at home and they have to just take care to have stringent isolation while they're infectious to reduce risk of transmission, there are some people who will require, where it can be very painful, the poxes, and they require inpatient management. And is that inpatient management with antiviral medication or is that palliative? Also with pain management, intravenous morphines, etc. And then also management of the complications of severe pains. And there's also, we know there's secondary complications. For example, it can also have psychological complications as well as a risk of secondary infections in the poxes and encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the brain. So, and even though we know this and we know roughly how it's transmitted. It's also an issue for healthcare facilities also need to be aware of how to prevent the risk of transmission. And when you have to isolate patients and stringent infection protection control regulations, it also adds extra pressure on healthcare services. So to help, we have clinical management guidelines. So they are documents that guide clinical decision-making. So clinical management guidelines generally provide information about which symptoms to look out for. So that can be very helpful, especially when it's rare infectious that people might be less familiar with. So help their physicians triage which patients might need what kind of samples and what kind of diagnostics tests to identify if it is monkeypox or something else, and also how to treat patients. So we did a systematic review to look for the availability of existing monkeypox clinical management guidelines to look at what's available for clinicians, because we were also concerned about looking at whether clinicians globally have access to guidelines for early identification of cases, to initiate prevention, and also to treat patients to ultimately guidelines are there to improve patient care and outcomes. Excellent. And so you actually were able to find 14 guidelines and you found disagreements and agreements. Were they generally harmonized or was there a lot of work to be done still? So in our systematic review, so we use systematic review methodologies and we searched for peer-reviewed guidelines that are published in traditional literature and also for great literature, we looked at internet and different public health websites, etc., where we would expect to find these kind of guidelines. 
So we identified only 14 guidelines from our search. Of course, we might have missed some. Uh, they're not always available in public domains. But from the 14 we found, there are published by major organizations that are generally involved in guideline development. We did find some concerns about guidelines being published and probably published in response to earlier outbreak. We've had in the past, you know, a few cases, travel imported cases that has emerging countries. So we find in, in this and, and relate the reviews an issue around how guidelines is produced, maybe in response to outbreaks, and then never revisited. So some of the guidelines that are available publicly were old and, and out of date or might be out of date, which might reflect some of the differences we found in recommendations. So some of them recommended older treatments, etc. And also we found an issue in the methodological quality, and many of them lacked any guidance on which methods they used. And also, as we said, there's a differences in recommendation. And also monkeypox, there are no kind of identified effective antiviral treatments. We have some on the horizon. Most of them were developed to respond to smallpox. Also, I think in the US have a stock in case smallpox would emerge, which is a more severe disease. So it's still limited data on how effective they are to this related virus. So there's some indication that they might have effectiveness, but still very limited studies on it. So guidelines are useful, but they need to be evidence-based and clinicians need to be as certain that they are evidence-based. Absolutely. And those are guidelines that, that you looked at, did they address special needs groups like children or HIV-infected individuals? Most of them were addressed to adults or did not state that the population addressed. So I think most of them were addressed to adults and there was only a few that mentioned children or pregnant women or people living with immunosuppression who are population groups that are maybe a higher risk of severe infection. From earlier studies in Africa, there was a higher mortality in younger children, but we do not know if that's the same for this outbreak. We don't know if that's dependent on the limited healthcare setting and perhaps a higher risk of secondary complication, malnutrition, etc. So we don't know if that's the same for this outbreak in higher income settings when you have higher access to care, but it is a concern that there was limited guidance for children. Okay. And you also talked about post-exposure prophylaxis already, but what about pre-exposure prophylaxis? Is there any mention of that in the guidelines and what people should be taking? There was a few guidelines that mentioned recommendations that are not evidence-based, which is another concept. So that's another issue with guidelines if they're developed rapidly in response to outbreaks and perhaps there's a special resources and, and people are maybe not using robust methodologies as we see that they're not evidence-based, which is another concern. I think what is flagging up is that we need to look at how we develop guidelines better, ideally ahead of epidemics, and also how we then integrate new evidence that will emerge from studies into these guidelines to keep them updated or retract all guidelines if there's no resources for it. From the outside of development of guidelines, we recommend to involve stakeholders from countries that have experiences in dealing with monkeypox and also that their mechanism from the beginning about how they will be updated as new evidence emerges. So what we also found in our review, which is a real positive, is that guideline that was produced from Nigeria Center for Disease Control had more complex recommendation on these important aspects of preventing and managing the risk of secondary complications. And they had in-depth guidance on that, which is helpful. So for emerging infections, often there's limited treatments available. So this mainstay is normally what we call referred to supportive care such as fluids and managing electrolytes and preventing and managing secondary complications. So that was a positive and it also highlights that need of ensuring that to engage the right st stakeholders with experience when developing guidelines to help ensure that they are complex, covering the key important aspects 
as well as being able to integrate new treatments. What we also see is we need to harmonize guideline development. We need to ensure that guidelines address key population groups that could potentially be at higher risk of infections. And seeing how this outbreak is emerging now, also that all these population groups that might have higher risk of immunosuppression, etc., are covered for in the guidelines. And also that guidelines are made accessible to clinicians globally and that they have mechanisms for integrating new evidence. Right. And what are some of the solutions for going forward? And it's my last question here to improve the availability of up-to-date guidelines for the physicians that are dealing with the disease now. I think in your discussion, you mentioned some possible strategies that could be addressed. Could you mention those? One of our recommendations is to create some more set guidelines up as living guidelines when there's resources to do it. So have mechanisms placed for monitoring new evidence coming out and integrating that into the guidelines. So on that note, early on in the COVID pandemic, we did a rapid review of COVID guidelines and we found also these differences in recommendations, even more so, and people recommending treatments that were purely experimental and should only be used as part of clinical trials. And since then, WHO has taken a good lead in setting up a living guideline framework for COVID. So we're hoping that this can be adapted as a model for other guidelines as well and for monkeypox, etc. And WHO is one of the normative bodies we have. And as this is one of the organizations that clinicians globally might turn to, as well as the US Centers and other Centers for Disease Control, I think it's important that those organizations that we focus on looking to their, maybe support their living guidelines frameworks as the kind of key standardized normative guideline for others to review. So I think it's also important that we support those organizations that might have the resources to do this, and also that they had the capacity to engage stakeholders from different regions to make sure that the guidelines cover, you know, different risk populations, because this might be different in different regions and it might be different strains, etc. So I think that's one of our key recommendations, living guideline framework and looking at harmonizing them by looking to these kind of normative bodies and make sure that they have the latest information today. And also investments into research to forward the evidence into most effective treatment for monkeypox now. And that, that there are funding for research to include children, pregnant women and people with immunosuppression, etc. Because this is another issue that we've seen in the past, also in randomized controlled trials, that those groups are often underrepresented even though they're also often at higher risk of severe disease. So I think that's another of our key recommendations, investments, supporting people doing standardized RCTs, and then have a link to these living guideline frameworks. That's very clear messaging. Thank you so much for your time. Hello, and welcome back to Physicians Weekly. We are joined again by our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney. Dr. Medlaw, thank you again for being with us. Great to be here. There is a point that confuses a lot of doctors about cases that allege a failure to diagnose. These are the ones in which the patient is currently healthy, but is still suing over the care based on the possibility that they might get sick again in the future. How is it possible for a plaintiff to do that? Uh, That actually comes up a lot in my field, which is breast imaging. Uh, So... Let's use an example from that. Let's say that a doctor is sued by a patient who claims that a mammogram that the doctor read two years ago actually showed a small early cancer that was not diagnosed. And then the, uh, that patient, now the plaintiff, is stage 2B at the time of her diagnosis. And she's alleging that she would have been stage 1 when the cancer was missed. So she sues for all the additional treatment that she had to undergo as a result of her delayed diagnosis. But even though she's currently cancer-free, she also alleges a decrease in her chance to survive. So how is that possible? 
That her cancer might recur and she might die is only a possibility, and people can't sue over possibilities. Well, that's that's absolutely correct. We call those speculative damages. We disallow them. But here, the answer is she's not suing for a future damage. She's suing for a present one that has already attached the loss of a substantial chance to be cured, and we call this, no surprises, the loss of chance doctrine. And it actually has a long history. How far back does it go? It showed up the first time back in 1867.、Uh, the Ohio Supreme Court held that any negligence that diminishes the chance of the patient's recovery would, in a legal sense, constitute injury.、Uh, then, in 1902, an appellate court in Kentucky held that the patient is entitled to the chance for better results. That the patient might have suffered the same outcome in spite of proper treatment, or that ordinarily bad results occur, is no excuse to the physician who neglects to give his patient the benefit of the chance. So that's the important language: the benefit of the chance. And courts have also not been happy to hear from defendants that this is oh just something out in the unknowable ether of the future. So in 1966. Uh, the Fourth Circuit stated, and it was pretty snarky when it did so, that when a defendant's negligent action or inaction has effectively terminated a person's chances of survival, it does not lie in the defendant's mouth to raise conjectures as to the measure of the chances that he's put beyond the possibility of realization. If there was any substantial possibility of survival, and the defendant destroyed it, he is answerable. So, in other words, if you broke the chance of a better outcome, you bought it. So it sounds like this is court saying that if there was negligent care, that every aspect, including a future one, should be accounted for in the damages. That's exactly it. The doctrine has become increasingly widely accepted because courts dislike rules that protect negligent parties. The whole idea of tort law is that those that cause a harm should compensate the one they harmed. And there's also an element of deterrence against negligent care. So courts are comfortable with the idea that making longer survival unlikely is itself a damage that must be paid for. So is this pretty old doctrine still applied as it was in the 19th or 20th centuries? It's actually evolved very fundamentally in terms of how it's applied. The rule used to be that the pre-negligent survival had to be more likely than not. In other words, over 50 percent. Below that level, any harm that the plaintiff suffered was attributed to their disease, even if the doctor was held to have been negligent. What this came down to, though, was that negligent physicians who happened to have been negligent on people with worse illnesses were protected. So courts therefore began to separate causation from damages. Can you give an example? Sure.、Uh, in a 2008 case, the Massachusetts Supreme Court held that a A physician's breach of duty eliminated or diminished the patient's chance of survival or of a better outcome. Then that physician had deprived that patient of something of value. This changed the analysis from the preponderance of the evidence, the greater than fifty percent standard that we use to determine if there's negligence in the first place, now to one of pure damages. The loss of chance for a better outcome or a cure is now gradable on its own value, just as, for example, the loss of a chance to make a living due to the malpractice would be. Now, most states now follow this, or yeah, some do hold to the greater than fifty percent cutoff. But even in states that have adopted the more flexible version, there still are countervailing limits. 
A loss of chance claim has to rely on expert evidence. The expert has to show that established parameters, such as overall survival rates and survival rates at standard intervals, they have to testify as to their specific methodology and as to the reliability, and that's peer-reviewed research, of their opinion that there was a loss of chance and to what degree. So statistics will prove the damage? No, they're just the start. For the plaintiff to meet their burden of proof on the loss of chance, and remember, this is a damage claim, so they bear the burden of proof uh, that they're claiming, their expert has to show that their personal situation falls within the statistical range for patients with their condition. So the expert will have to show that given their own circumstances, their overall health at the time of the alleged malpractice, the pathologic and immunologic and cytologic nature of their disease, that those all make it likely that they themselves would have had the better outcome that statistics predict, but for the negligence. So this is really about showing that they could have been part of a group with a better outcome. That's exactly it. You don't have to prove with certainty that you would have done better. You have to prove that you were within a group likely to have done better by the amount of the lost chance. So how much does that lost chance have to be? Uh, as courts will say, substantial. Which means what? Different things to different courts. Uh, the problem is that after the removal of that rote greater than 50% rule, courts haven't placed a numeric value on what's deemed substantial. Now, this actually makes medical sense. I mean, it wouldn't address medical reality if a decrease in a plaintiff's chance of survival from 30% to 10% was seen as the same as a decrease from 50% to 30%. I mean, they might both be 20%, but the first is obviously a much worse situation for the patient than the second. So, for example, in a case in Minnesota about a failure to diagnose an infant's tumor, uh, it decreased her chance of survival from 60% to 40%. The court said, okay, 20% is substantial. Uh, in a case in Washington State, a 14% reduction of likely survival in a lung cancer case was accepted as substantial. So how does this play out with the jury? The jury has to put the matter into context and determine if what can be considered a substantial level of loss of chance based on population stats was also a substantial factor in the actual case. So what this is, is that the expert shows the jury the extent of the loss of chance, but it's the jury that determines what role it really played in the context of the disease as it was at the time of the alleged negligence. Does this overlap with proving the negligence? No, this is just damages. Uh, the plaintiff must first meet their burden of proof that there was negligence at all, that a duty was not met, that the standard of care was not followed, and that's just as in every medical malpractice case. They then must make their burden of proof that they were denied a substantial chance to be cured as a result of the negligence that they just proved. So when the jury is doing its analysis, how does it, well, juggle the numbers? How damages will be said varies between states, but there are two basic methods. Uh, in some states, the injury or death that results from the delay is the compensable harm, full damages are recoverable. In some states, is only recovery for the value of the reduction of the chance of survival or better outcome. Uh, it's a discounting system that takes factors like the timing of the negligence and the plaintiff's life expectancy into account. By the way, we were discussing this at the start as being common in radiology cases. The loss of chance doctrine isn't limited to those, is it? No. Um, most cases in which the doctrine has been raised 
are about delays in diagnosis and, well, radiology often factors into that. But it has also underpinned claims for failure to timely call emergency services, failure to timely admit to a hospital, failure to properly or timely transfer a patient, failure to perform needed surgery. Basically, any negligence that causes a delay in needed care can be one that this doctrine is applicable to. There is a lot of interest in genetic testing. Could the loss of chance doctrine be applied if a doctor fails to order this and the patient develops a worse form of the condition that they are prone to? That is a great question. And the answer is that it could apply even though only the propensity to the outcome is present at the point that the plaintiff is claiming that the negligent non-ordering occurred. So let's say that a family has a hyperlipidemia syndrome and earlier intervention can reduce the likelihood of a heart attack. If someone in that family who went untested and suffered that event could prove that a substantial percentage of earlier diagnosed people with the condition had better outcomes, the failure to test could realistically underpin a loss of chance claim. So what can the defense do to counter a loss of chance claim? When the expert testifies, the defense will push back and claim the disease itself overshadowed any effect of the negligence. And this would actually be a throwback to the oldest version of the rule in which, you know, below a certain level of survivability, negligence dropped out in comparison to disease pathology. However, with the more flexible modern approach, this might not be effective. So there are several points that should be raised by the defense expert for the jury, you know, to, to put the reality of clinical outcomes into perspective for them. When there is a treatment failure after a negligent act, it's likely that jurors who have a lot of faith in modern medicine and who believe that early detection leads to cure will conclude that the harm must have occurred solely because of the negligence. So actual limitations in the given case, such as the inherent aggressiveness of, of the disease or the patient's own physical limitations, should therefore be made clear to the jury. The next issue is lead time bias. Uh, statistics are based on studies that don't account for the timing of the diagnosis. So what happens is, is that earlier diagnosed cases, they appear to survive.